Uh, Lord, I would pray uh, that you would bring in, as you've done in the past, a godly man to leave that church, to lead that church, somebody who loves you, somebody who loves your word, who will proclaim the gospel faithfully. And Lord, I pray that as he does that, it will build up and edify the believers in that church, that they will uh, grow in their knowledge of an, an understanding of your son, Jesus Christ, that they'll begin to comprehend more and more just how much it is you love them. And Lord, as they receive the word, they would then take that word into the world, that your gospel would be proclaimed from that church. Lord, I'm thankful for the people you've sent out from this church as well. I think about uh, Harriman Chapel and uh, the work that Pastor Aaron is doing there and uh, faithfully ministering the truth and the gospel there. Uh, thankful for uh, this morning that as Aaron was unable to be there, that uh, Cody was able to fill in at kind of a last minute. And uh, so thankful for Cody's faithfulness. Lord, I pray for that church, that you would uh, bless them, that you would honor their gathering together, uh, that you would bring true godly community to that church and that you'd allow that church to reach out to their neighbors and to love them. Father, we thank you for the ministries you've risen in our church. Lord, I think specifically of uh, Nicole Scoville. Uh, she served this church in a number of ways over the years, but uh, with her current uh, ladies book club that she does, the Gleaners, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, allow that group to, to really have a shared life together, that as they Certainly spend time reading these books and discussing them, and hopefully there's some discipleship and some growth that comes. They get a greater understanding of who you are. Uh, but just that time together that they would begin to know each other uh, deeply and be able to pray for one another, that you'd be able to see uh, those prayers being answered and lives being changed. But we also thank you for your word. Uh, it's your word oftentimes that gathers us together, that we can have a chance to hear from you. And so I would pray that you... Uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would reveal yourself to us, that you would help us to uh, become conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, that your word would do its work in us, that you would uh, complete the work that you've started in us. So, Father, open up your word to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bible with you, we are in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, if you're new with us, I uh, just wanted to let you know how we're doing things right now. Uh, after about 14 years, we finished the Bible, which was cool, uh, but I also decided not everybody was here for 14 years, so we're going to do the New Testament much faster this time, and so we're working on a five-year plan to get through the entire New Testament. We do a chapter a week, uh, and uh, so we are in this week, Matthew chapter 12. That is a long chapter, so I should probably stop talking about what we usually do and just get right into what it has to say for us tonight. Uh, when we approach the Gospel of Matthew, we're seeing uh, this kind of repeated theme uh, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the things of the Old Testament Scriptures, and so we're constantly seeing that come up. It's going to come up again here in Matthew 12, uh, but as we approach each week in the passages, we want to make sure that we're asking ourselves good questions, that, that we would ask ourselves, uh, how is it that we're supposed to grow or be conformed to be more like Jesus Christ? Uh, one of my favorite questions to ask, particularly in the Gospels, is, uh, are you more like Jesus or the Pharisees? Now, I think most of us, we know the Sunday school answer, we're more like Jesus, yay, okay, okay, we get it. But I think if you take some time to really watch what's going on, the interactions that Jesus has with the Pharisees, uh, I think you'll find that there's still a little bit of the Pharisees' heart in most of us. And so what we want to do is kind of follow through as the Scriptures uh, shows Jesus in these confrontations with the Pharisees and, and check ourselves against that to make sure that we are more like Jesus than we are like the Pharisees. When we got into chapter 11, there, there kind of was this trend that was starting to happen there in Matthew 
where the Pharisees were starting to confront him more often. It was becoming more confrontational. When Jesus first started, everything was amazing. Everybody loved him. He was the most powerful teacher. He was healing people and casting out demons, and it was drawing crowds, and that was great. What we started to see in chapter 11, we'll see more clearly today, is that he's going to be under confrontation more clearly as he goes through the rest of uh, the New Testament here, the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. So uh, let's pick it up here then in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So uh, the, the issue at hand is uh, one of an interpretation of the Old Testament law. Now, when we look at this through American eyes, we look at this scenario, we see Jesus and his disciples walking through somebody else's grain field. And the first thing I think is trespassing. What are you doing, dude? You can't walk through there. That's not your place. And then they start taking some grain off. And now I'm like, now you guys are stealing. You're killing me. But that wasn't the problem that the Pharisees had. In fact, uh, the, the way God had designed his economy, the way he had designed the Old Testament was uh, really to allow these types of things to provide for those who were needy, to provide for the poor. And so you have this idea of gleaning where somebody could literally just come through a field and they could grab what they needed for that meal. They couldn't like pack their bags for future meals. This wasn't like going to Walmart. They weren't shopping or anything like that. But in order to provide for the sojourner, the person who's just traveling through the land, uh, or to provide for the person uh, who is just needy and hungry, you had this legal authority under the Old Testament law to just enter into somebody else's field and take a little bit, uh, which I think is kind of a, just a powerful picture of the way that God sees the world being provided for by other people, uh, that we as believers would certainly have that hopefully in our heart, that there would be uh, some excess in what we have to provide for those who don't have, so that we can be a, at least a part of that solution. But that wasn't the issue that the Pharisees had. Their issue was the day of the week they were doing it on. So the Jews, was, as they were following the Sabbath, they would see Saturday as the Sabbath. That's the holy day. This is a day of rest and no work is allowed. Now they then took that and extended that and they came up with a whole new set of rules to describe what work is because the Bible didn't do it well enough when it just said don't work. You need to remember God on that day. So they tried to make it more clear and they came up with a whole new list of rules to explain what work looked like. And for them, this looked like work because as they pull off a head of grain, well, that looks an awful lot like harvesting to me and harvesting is work. And then as they take that grain and they rub it between their hands to get like the driest trail mix ever, um, that looks an awful lot like threshing to me. That's an awful lot like work. Jesus, your disciples are working on the Sabbath. And so they had a little bit of a problem with this, uh, this issue. So Jesus is going to answer them. He has five answers for them. It's funny when you're taking a whole chapter at a time. There's really like four sermons in this chapter, and I'm trying to crush them into one sermon. So uh, as you go through this, he really gives five answers, or at least five answers that I see in here to their question. Uh, and so we'll look at those. The first answer comes for us in verse 3. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? So his first answer, and you'll see that as Jesus' answer uh, is answering these things, he's answering them in an un. un 
uh, maybe not obvious, but in a very controversial way for the, for the Pharisees. It's very much in their face, the way that he answers. And the reason I say it's in their face, because he starts with this phrase, have you not read? That's like saying to somebody, don't you even know the Bible? But these are the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders. These are the people who are like the people of the book. Like they, they know the word. They stand for the word. And Jesus starts his response to them, haven't you read? And he describes this event that occurred uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 21 when King David uh, was trying to escape for his life. King Saul, King David hadn't actually been made king yet by the people, only by God. But King Saul wanted to put David to death. And so David's running through his life, running for his life, and he runs across these priests his priest, and he asks if there's any bread for him and his traveling companions. And the priest is like, well, we don't have any bread except for the consecrated bread, the bread that's set apart for God that we put uh, on the table of showbread, and only the priests, according to the law, are able to eat this. David said, but we're hungry. <laughs> and so the priest said, making a long story not quite as long, if you guys haven't profaned yourself in the last week, I'll let you eat the bread. But the example that Jesus is basically saying there, hey, one of your Old Testament heroes seemingly broke the law. Why was that okay? Why was that all right? He then is going to go after them again with this next answer in verse 5. Or, and he starts it the same way, have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent. So he gives them another example. This time he looks at the Old Testament law. You can see uh, examples of this in Numbers chapter 28, but there is within the temple this requirement that on the Sabbath day there would be sacrifices, and somebody has to do that work, and it's the priests. In fact, they have to do twice as many sacrifices on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, their day of rest, than they would on any other day of the week. That sounds like twice as much work. So Jesus, using the word, making it very clear where he's getting his answers to them, says this, why is it okay for the priests to break the Sabbath? Now he's building up to a, a greater answer with these various ones uh, here, but he, and he hints at it here in verse 6, which is what I would call his third answer. His third answer is this, but I say to you something greater than the temple is here. And he's implying that he himself is greater than the Old Testament temple where they worship God. And you'll see this phrase three different times. Uh, something greater is here, here in chapter 12. Uh, first, it'll be the temple. Then he'll say he's greater than Jonah. Then he's going to say uh, also that he's greater than Solomon. You'll see these kind of built throughout this chapter. Uh, but Jesus is saying, now, now think this through. Logically, if the priests are allowed to break the Sabbath by serving in the temple, and Jesus is greater than the temple then certainly his disciples can work on the Sabbath. Now, he's building ultimately to this answer that we'll see here in a few minutes, uh, but he's just kind of slowly building his case. Uh, then he returns to the Scriptures again for his third answer. I'm sorry, his fourth answer. He says this in verse 7, But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And so he again returns to the scripture. Now he's talking through prophecy in the book of Hosea chapter 6, and he's getting to the heart of the issue here, and that is their hearts. And he says this from the book of Hosea, that God desires compassion 
and not sacrifice. It's a repeated theme in the Old Testament. In the book of Psalms, in the book of Isaiah, you see this idea. He says it like this. I think it's in the Psalms where he says it like this. He says, I'm tired of your bloody sacrifices. That's not a British way of saying that. Their sacrifices were literally bloody. I'm tired of your bloody sacrifices. I want your heart. You see, somehow the Jewish people had started out worshiping God through the sacrifices, but over time the sacrifices became more important than the God behind them. They had gotten to this point where they were just going through the routines, through the behavior, the traditions, all of that stuff. They were just doing these things out of rote behavior, but they weren't doing them anymore to God. And it kind of builds this false gospel in their mind where they're saying to themselves, but I, because I've done X, Y, and Z, because I've followed the rules, I now deserve to be a part of God's kingdom. That's not the way God designed the law. It was never for them to feel like they deserved it. It was always for them to remember that they couldn't be holy unless God did the work of making them holy. And he did that through sacrifices pointing all the way forward Uh, by the way, to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's really at the heart of everything that Jesus teaches. You see this in Matthew 22. There's going to be this lawyer that's going to come to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, what is the greatest law? What's the greatest law in the whole Testament? And Jesus says, well, I'll give you two. The greatest is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. What he gives us there is, is a key to interpret the Old Testament laws, that you can run those Old Testament laws, those Old Testament prophecies through these two things and say that each one of those is about loving God or loving your neighbor. And so when you see all of this ritual in the Old Testament sacrificial system, what you're really seeing is a picture of a holy God. It's a reminder as they went through all that, that that's how separate, how how holy God is, how different he is from the rest of us. But they were seeing the exact opposite. They were seeing themselves as the holy ones because of the things that they had done. They were missing it, this idea of love as well. You look at the Old Testament laws, you'll find these various laws that kind of seem somewhat arbitrary to us. There's a law in the Old Testament that says if you have a flat roof on your house, you have to put a fence around the roof. And we would look at that and say, what a strange thing for God to put in his law. But the way they used their roofs would be like a giant patio, and that's where they would go at night to cool off after a long, hot day. They would go up to the roof, have friends and family over, and Jesus or God is saying, put the fence around there so that your neighbor doesn't fall off your roof. It's just a simple act of love. That's the way the law was designed for them. It was designed to show them how to love God more and how to love others more. But what seems to be happening is the Pharisees have this tendency to love themselves more. They took the holy things of God and they made them about them, about how great they were and about how wonderful they are and how well they follow the religious systems. And they're missing the heart of God. He desires compassion and not sacrifice. I put it in an equation in my mind like this because the Pharisees certainly knew the word, but as Jesus says it here in verse 7, he says, if you had known what it means. So they knew the word, they just didn't fully understand it. And the outcome of that was that they condemned the innocent. And so when you have a knowledge of the word, apart from an understanding of the word, it leads to condemnation. That's what the issue that the Pharisees had. And sometimes we as Christians have that as well. We, we kind of have a general idea about some things that the Bible is opposed to, but we don't understand the why. We don't understand the purpose of it. We don't recognize that God uses these things 
to remind people that they need him, not to remind people that they're terrible. But we as Christians sometimes, because we have the knowledge, we know that's terrible in God's word. So you must be a terrible person because you've done that. It's the exact opposite of the heart of God. The heart of God is to say, see, you're separated from me because of your sins. I'm using this to tell you, you need me to bring you to a place of holiness and salvation. They had a knowledge of the word without an understanding, which led them to condemn innocent people. So finally, the fifth answer that Jesus brings to this first confrontation, and really the answer that he wants to bring all together is this, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now in here, Jesus is doing a couple of things. First of all, he's answering their question. He's just saying, just so you know, I own the Sabbath. The Sabbath works for me. That's what he's saying. I'm the boss of the Sabbath. But the way he's worded it is pretty particular. He's using this phrase, uh, the Son of Man, which in this instance seems to be more of a messianic connection. It's connecting to Daniel chapter 7, the messianic prophecies there. That's what it seems to be. Now, sometimes son of man can just literally mean a human, but it doesn't make sense in this context unless he's saying something greater than just human. The human is greater or is Lord of the Sabbath. So that's the first piece of this. So he's claiming himself to be the Messiah that the nation of Israel has been waiting for. The second thing he's doing, though, is he's declaring himself God. Think of it this way. If you were to ask any one of those Pharisees before this moment, who's the Lord of the Sabbath? Every one of them would have said, God is. To which Jesus would say, yes, I am. He's proclaiming himself the Messiah and the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he's in charge of the Sabbath. He's the boss of the Sabbath. So that's how he answers him in this place. Now, it's going to cause some, some friction to build between him and them, that the Pharisees kind of struggled with this idea, uh, struggled with these concepts here. Uh, and you're going to find that it's going to lead them to a place of anger, so much anger uh, that they're going to want to destroy Jesus. The confrontation actually carries on now uh, throughout the day. It says in verse 9, departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And I start circle the word there in my Bible. He went into their synagogue, not just a synagogue. He went to the Pharisees' synagogue. They were pursuing him, obviously, in the grain fields, but now he's pursued them into their very own synagogue. It says he went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered, and he questioned, and they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And it reveals their motivation here so that they might accuse him. So the whole setup here, the whole reason they're even asking this question is so that they can accuse Jesus. They're trying to entrap him with his words. They're trying to entrap him in this circumstance. Again, it's all surrounding this idea of whether or not you can work on the Sabbath. Now, this is the question that they have for him. Uh, but I I kind of look at this whole scenario and I, I kind of feel guy, like bad for the guy with the withered hand. He's got a pretty rough life, right? He's living at a time where basically to work, you have to work with your hands. That's the time period he lived in in history. And he has one of them that's withered. So already life is hard for him. And now he shows up to worship God and all of a sudden all the eyes are on him. Hey, look at the guy with the withered hand. Because that's what people love who are handicapped to have everybody point out their handicap. And then in this moment, they're going to try to use him as a tool, as a pawn in their game to accuse Jesus. There's already something wrong with the way they're approaching this, I would say, in my mind. There's already an issue with them, not just that they're wanting to accuse Jesus, but they're willing to do it by using this man, this handicapped man with the withered hand. Well, Jesus is going to answer them, and, and he does it in a pretty cool way. He's going to use just a little simple parable 
to just show the foolishness of their question. Verse 11, he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. That's some gentle wording, conspiring as to how they might destroy him. Before we get to the man with the withered hand, let me just ask you a question. Is it lawful to conspire to destroy somebody on the Sabbath? See, that's why I'm not Jesus. I'm all sarcastic about this stuff. But think about that. Is it lawful to pick grains of wheat and eat on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to heal somebody on the Sabbath? I don't know. Is it lawful to conspire to destroy somebody on the Sabbath? That seems to kind of miss the point, doesn't it? There's something wrong in the heart of these Pharisees. Jesus will reveal it later on in the chapter. But uh, we have this situation where Jesus answers. He's going to use this very simple parable. Uh, And the parable is this. He said, which one of you, if your sheep fell into a hole on the Sabbath day, wouldn't you just go get it out of the hole? You're not just going to leave it down there to suffer. How much more should you do good things for people? Now, don't tell PETA about that, but it turns out from God's perspective, people are more important than animals from God's perspective. So he brings this out, and then he gives them this very simple principle to answer their question, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And in doing so, he reveals the problem that God has with them. They would rather follow the Sabbath rules than do good, because they see the rule following as the greater good. But God sees the man with the withered hand as the greater good. And so in this case, it's lawful to do good. But the heart of the Pharisees was to say that it was awful to do good. What a contrast. What a difference between these two people here. So Jesus does this miraculous thing, and this man's life is changed in an instant. His withered hand is now back to being useful. In Sunday school class this morning, uh, Judy Norris was doing the illustration of this for the kids, because we have our kids doing the same thing we are, so parents and kids can have a conversation, right? And she took this uh, picture, these two pieces of paper, and each kid drew on each piece of paper. They just traced their hand, and they traced their other hand on the other piece of paper. And then she said, now I want you to take one of those, and I want you to just ball it up and crinkle it up and see what you're left with. You're, you're left with one working hand. And at the end, she has them straighten it back out again and to see. Just think about what a change that is for the man with the withered hand, his whole life. But they, they didn't respond by going, wow, which is the proper response, right? Wow, did you see that? No, they responded with, oh, I'm going to destroy this guy. Their heart is revealed. There's an issue. There's something that's not quite right there. Well, verse 15, Jesus, of course, is aware that they're conspiring against him. Uh, It says in verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. 
I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will have hope. Now, this is one of those sections where Matthew just inserts into the conversation a reminder that all the stuff that Jesus is doing is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. This one here found in Isaiah chapter 42. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, the servant of God or the suffering servant uh, is again, it's a messianic title. This is the, the one that the nation of Israel was waiting for to save them, to bring them to the eternal kingdom of God. Here, Matthew is proclaiming that that person is Jesus, but uh, it's interesting the way that he uses this prophecy. It's not in the typical way. Uh, when you read through this prophecy, it, it's really just saying that the servant would actually be Savior, not just for the nation of Israel, but he'd be a Savior for the whole world. He would be the hope of the Gentiles. Uh, but what Matthew does is he connects here the attitude of Jesus. So Jesus, after leaving this confrontation, he goes out and about, and he's healing people, and all these people are following him. And of course, I would follow him too. If I had seen him do something miraculous like that, I would be like, where's he going next? I want to see what's next. This is amazing. So all these people begin to follow him, and it says he heals them all. And then it says that was to fulfill this prophecy. But he has this one weird thing that he adds in there. He tells them, don't tell anybody that I healed you. In other words, he doesn't want this getting out. Now, here's what I think is happening. Now, you can maybe come up with a different conclusion, but what I think is happening here uh, is Jesus knows that he doesn't want to push the Pharisees too far, not because he's afraid of them, but because he knows it's not yet time for him to be crucified. But it shows in the midst of that, this heart, this attitude of Jesus, where it says this, uh, that he's not going to be one to quarrel or cry out. In other words, he's not taking the fight to them, which, by the way, strategically, if I'm winning an argument, I don't stop. Like, Jesus is winning this argument. What is he doing? Just walking away. He, he withdrew? Are you kidding me? You're winning, man. Keep going. You've got him on the ropes. But Jesus withdraws. There's this, this patience and this peacefulness in the way that he uh, deals even with those who are in confrontation with him. And so it it's describes it like this. He will not quarrel. He won't cry out. You're not going to hear him screaming on the streets. But instead it says, a battered reed he will not break off. And so imagine you're, you're out, in the, out in the middle of the uh, lake there and you pull up to the shore and there's all these reeds and your boat hits a reed and it kind of bends over. It's battered. And Jesus isn't going to break that the rest of the way off. There's again this just gentleness. There's this hopefulness. And then it says it like this, a smoldering wick he won't put out. Again, it's a gentleness. And I think this gentleness, believe it or not, is directed at the Pharisees. That he looks at the Pharisees, and although at this point their faith is weak or non-existent, he's not ready to put them down yet. Uh, the reality is, because of his patience, some of the Pharisees will come to believe who he is. Some of the Pharisees will begin to follow him as Messiah. Not all of them, but some of them will. And I think it has something to do with just the way in which he approached these things. He could have ended it right there. And let's not just forget who he is. He is God in the flesh. He could have gone full Thanos finger snap and ended it like that. Boom, Pharisee's gone. Problem solved. I don't need to deal with this. I'm the Messiah. I'm the King of Israel. Why are you talking back to me, right? Like he could have done all that stuff, but he didn't. There's this patience to it. There's this gentleness. Even as he springs strong rebukes, he doesn't take it so far as to destroy. So the Pharisees aren't willing to leave it there. It says in verse 22, 
Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and, and uh, saw. And all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, uh, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So now Jesus, he's healing all these people. There's one particular guy that's brought to him. He is demon possessed. And apparently the demons were causing him to not be able to see or speak. He was blind and he was mute. And Jesus heals this guy. And the proper response is amazement. That's amazing. A guy who could not see, could not speak, boom, can see and speak. And the demon has been cast out. And this is amazing. And so, of course, the crowds were amazed. The crowds are so amazed that they begin to ask a very important question. They're saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Again, we're looking at a messianic title. The son of David is relating to an Old Testament promise that on the throne of David, there would be a descendant of David who would rule as king over the land of Israel forever. And now the crowds, seeing the miraculous things that Jesus is doing, they ask themselves this question, is he the son of David? Is he the one, the promised one that we've been waiting for? Pharisees are not having this. This is a problem for them. And so they're saying, no, 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 he's not the son of David. Actually, he's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub or, or by the power of Satan. He's actually working for the devil, they say. Jesus is going to answer them. He's got three answers for them here. The first is the simplest. It's just a logical answer, which I often appreciate those the most. But the answer is pretty logical. In verse 25, it says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? He basically says, do you understand how ignorant your argument is? You're saying that I work for Satan and my job is to cast out Satan's demons. That doesn't even make sense. A kingdom divided against itself won't stand. A house divided won't stand. Is Satan casting out Satan? Logical argument. Pharisees, your, your, your question, your answer doesn't even make sense. Your view here doesn't even make sense. It's illogical. He takes it further in verse 27. If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons by whom... Do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he uh, first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me. Who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. His second answer is this, hey, I thought some of you Pharisees were casting out demons. By whose power do they cast out demons? Of course, the Pharisees will say, well, we cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, 
Well, if I'm doing the same thing, then it's by the same Spirit. And if I'm casting them out in the power of the Holy Spirit and I'm the fulfillment of all these things, well, now the kingdom of God is in your presence. It's right here. That's some pretty powerful stuff, by the way. He goes on to explain it even deeper where he uses this illustration of a strong man. It's kind of like just saying, what if somebody broke into your house? First, they have to bind the strongest person in the house, right? Well, if I'm breaking into somebody who's possessed by a demon, Jesus is saying, doesn't that make me stronger than the demons? If I'm going into Satan's kingdom and casting out his people, in order to do that, I have to bind Satan. Do you really want to mess with the guy that's stronger than Satan? Now, the Pharisees are kind of on the run at this point, but Jesus takes it one step further. He says, look, I've been nice up to this point. You want to talk bad about me? Go ahead and talk bad about me. But when you talk bad about the Holy Spirit, or as he says it here, when you call the the work of the Holy Spirit the work of Satan, you've blasphemed him. And I can't forgive that. I won't do it here, and I won't do it in my kingdom. It's called the unpardonable sin. It's led me to be a little bit cautious, by the way, in how I review other ministries. Uh, Sometimes I see uh, like faith healers and things like that on TV, and just instantly I'm just like, this probably just in it for the money. I mean, some of them are like flying around in Learjets and stuff, right? Like if your suit is shiny, isn't it just understood that you're a false prophet? If your hair looks like plastic, probably a false prophet. Like these are just things that I just notice and just instantly in my spirit, but I've actually tried to be more careful about that, to think about this for a second and say, wait a second. If somebody was healed by this person, whether I like the style or the method, and it was actually done by the power of God, maybe I better just shut up and say, wow, look at that. Maybe I should be just happy to see somebody healed. And I know what you're all thinking, because this is what I think. Probably was fake healings anyway. Well, hey, if you have evidence of that, then yes, call them out. But if you just think that might be it, you might want to be careful, because you might find yourself accusing the Spirit of God of doing the work of Satan. It's dangerous ground. Paul talks about this a little bit in his writings later. He'll say this. He'll say, you know, some people are preaching or proclaiming the name Jesus for their own purposes, for their own intents. And he just says, good, as long as the name of Jesus is glorified. In fact, that's pretty much the only way I'm willing to evaluate another ministry. I might think their methods are weird. I might think some of the things that they do are things that I wouldn't do. But if the name of Jesus is glorified through that, then I'm going to be a little bit nicer to the way I respond. But if the name of the prophet, the special guy on the stage in the shiny shiny suit, if he's the guy that gets all the attention, then I'm going to have issue with that. And it's hard not to give him attention, right? He's sparkling. Guy glows, for goodness sake. How can you not look at him? His third answer is this. It's powerful as well in verse 33. He says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? 
For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. He's warning here the Pharisees that they will be judged for the things that they're saying right in this moment. He's going to really go after that in the next section here. Uh, But the way he does that is he uses another little illustration. He says, look, if the fruit is good, then the tree is good. Since the fruit that I'm presenting to you is good fruit, a man was healed, demons were cast out, that's good fruit, then I must be good. But what he's saying to them is, since the fruit of your life is evil, you must be evil. He says it pretty clear there in verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. This is actually one of my favorite uh, lines in counseling. So I have this thing. Sometimes I have time to sit and listen to somebody's story, and they're going to like tell me all the stuff that's going on in their life, and sometimes it just kind of goes on, and I can just sit and listen, and I can try to think it through, come up with some biblical answers to their situation, but sometimes it's like, I don't have time for this right now, so it's going to be a triage. Give me the two-minute version of what's going on in your life, and they'll give me the two-minute version. And I'll say, here's the deal. It's one of these things. Either you're just so sinful that you're sub- subjecting yourselves to the consequences of those sins, It's possible that you're demon-possessed, and that thing needs to be cast out. You could just have a chemical imbalance, and you need some medicine. But possibly, you've filled your life with so much garbage that the only thing that's going to come out in your life is garbage. Garbage in, garbage out. Well, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying this. says it a little different. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure... What is evil? This is where we have to kind of judge ourselves against the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees have been identified as evil here. Well, what was it that came out of them? Legalism? Why are they eating or harvesting on the Sabbath? Why are they plucking grains and eating on the Sabbath? So focused on the actions, but not the people, no compassion for those people, which then led to accusations in verse 10, questioning him if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. What's it reveal about their heart? The accusations, which then led them to the next thing where it says that they were conspiring to destroy him. So what's coming out of their heart? Conspiracy and destruction. And then to accuse the work of the Spirit as being the work of Satan, to call the things of God the things of Satan. It's revealing their heart. Their actions are revealing their heart. And they had been apparently so evil that evil is what came out of them. It's the the tipping the jar illustration, right? If you fill something like a jar, you fill it all the way full. When you bump that jar, the only thing that can come out of it is the stuff that's in it. And our lives are kind of like that. Sometimes people bump us. And what comes out of our mouth reveals what's in our heart. Sometimes it's a literal bumping, like you're just walking through the mall and some, usually a teenager, but anyway, whatever. (laughs) They just think they're cool and they just bump you as they walk by. What comes out of your mouth 
reveals what's in your heart, doesn't it? This is the illustration I used this morning. It got glares, so it must have been a good one. When somebody tells you you have to put one of these on, what comes out of your heart or your mouth? I had fun first service as well because right before service, uh, somebody in the church was telling me, you know, someday you're going to have to do my funeral and it's going to be a road rage situation. Like somebody's going to cut me off and, and then it's on and then I'm going to die <laughs> and you're going to have to do my funeral. And I thought to myself, well, that's a great illustration for today's sermon. What comes out of your heart when somebody cuts you off? When somebody accuses you, when somebody confronts you, what comes out of your heart? Only that which fills your heart. Well, what came out of Jesus' heart when they bumped him, when they condemned him, when they confronted him? The Word of God. He quoted it repeatedly to them. What came out of his heart? Compassion. Love. Not willing to break a battered reed or put out a smoldering wick. Do you see the difference between the heart of Jesus and the heart of the Pharisees? Yeah, they'll be judged for the way they're responding to Jesus. Verse 38 picks it up here. Uh, the, the fight continues. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Which, by the way, he had just healed a man whose hand was withered. He had cast out demons. And it even says he had, he had healed many, not just many, all who came to him. And now they're saying, Well, maybe you should just show us a sign. Like none of those other signs counted because they weren't looking for him back then. But now we want a real sign. So Jesus is going to give them their sign. Teacher, we want to see a sign. He says this. He says, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, which is now the second time that he's called them evil here. He'll do it again in verse 45. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So they want a sign. Jesus has been showing them signs left and right. They've been ignoring him. So he says this, here's the only sign I'm going to give to you. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster for three days and then he came out, the Son of Man, and he's used that to define himself over and over in the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth and then he'll come back. And he's talking about his death and resurrection. He'll bring this up again in Matthew 16 as a sign because again, they're going to ask for a sign. And that's after he continues to bring signs and be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. So it's talking about uh, the book of Jonah here. He says, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. But here's the deal. This is what you have to remember about the book of Jonah. Jonah was asked by God to go to Nineveh and preach, but Jonah hated the Ninevites. So he didn't want to go, so he ran the other way. So God swallows him up in a giant fish, brings him all the way to the shore of Nineveh, spews him up on the land, and Jonah, after spending three days in a fish, is now, okay, maybe I'll do the things that God has asked me to do. But he's still not happy about it. And so as you read through the book of Jonah, it seems like as Jonah preaches, it's like the lamest sermon ever. Like he's not even really trying. In fact, he's hoping that they don't repent. 
So he's obedient to God by preaching like he's been asked to, but he's preaching in such a way in hopes that nobody will get saved. And so it almost sounds like the way it describes in Jonah that he just like walks one time through the center of town and goes, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And wouldn't you know it, those Ninevites repented? Are you kidding me? And Jonah like then argues with God. He's like, come on, God, seriously? Well, here's how Jesus responds to this. A couple of things that he says here. First of all, he says, just so you know, Pharisees, just so you know, you adulterous and evil generation of people. On the day of judgment, the people of Nineveh will stand up against you and be like, we had the worst preacher ever and we repented. You had Jesus. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Because Jesus, it says, is something greater. He's a greater preacher than Jonah. Verse 42, the same line of reasoning here. It says, The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is referring to 1 Kings chapter 10, 2 Chronicles chapter 9, where the queen of Sheba comes up because she hears of how wise Solomon is. And it says, Just by her seeing how he had organized his house... Just seeing the way it was set up, it was, it was so well put together, she recognizes that there's a God. And Jesus says, the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south on the day of judgment, is going to be like, nobody even preached to me. I just saw some guy's house and I got saved. And you have Jesus, wiser than Solomon, and you didn't get saved. Now imagine, this, this is how I envision it. Like, I think the Jews will be resurrected for that. The, the Pharisees here will be resurrected for that day of judgment. And they're going to think to themselves, yes, we're in heaven. And then they're going to turn to the left and see the Ninevites and go, what are you guys doing here? And the Ninevites are like, we're just here to let you know that you totally missed the boat. They're like, you've got to be kidding me. They're going to look over here and they're going to see the Queen of the South and like, you're here too? You're not even Jewish. And they're going to condemn them because they had Jesus Christ and they didn't repent. In fact, Jesus is going to say because of that, when he's gone, this generation is going to suffer in ways they can't even imagine. He says this in verse 43. And again, it's a, it's a parable. It's an illustration. But now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in there and live there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. He's just letting them know. Like, here I am, I'm Jesus, I've come, and I am cleaning house in Israel, but I'm leaving. He's going to die, he's going to resurrect, and he's going to ascend up into heaven. And he says, when I'm gone, this place is going to be hell on earth. Because the demons that I cast out, are they're coming back and they're bringing their friends. That generation that was with Jesus at that point that rejected him, they're going to suffer for that rejection. Particularly, I would say, uh, those Pharisees who rejected him. Now, it's not that it's just the Pharisees who are in opposition to Jesus. He's going to receive some opposition from an interesting group of people, starting in verse 46. It says, While he was speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak with him. 
And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, forever does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He is my brother and sister and mother. Now, there's kind of two things going on here. One is made clear in Matthew. The other is going to be made clear in Mark chapter 3 when this same event is covered. Uh, But the first thing is this, while he was still speaking to the crowds, his mom shows up and goes, Jesus, it's me, it's mom. And he's speaking, he's in this like epic battle with the Pharisees. I'm here with your brothers. We need to talk to you. Hey, can you go get him? He's my son. It's okay. Send somebody to go get Jesus. He's, he's in a battle with the Pharisees as they come in and they interrupt him. But that's not really the issue. The heart of the issue is revealed in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, uh, where it says that his people came to collect him because they thought he had lost his senses. His family is coming to collect him because they think he's out of his mind. That's what's really happening here. So his own family, and this is, this is Mary, right? And his brothers, James and the others. They've come to collect him because they think he's, he's just gone off the deep end. He's arguing with the Pharisees. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's even claiming to be God. And this is one of those things where we can kind of connect, I think, to Jesus a little bit. I don't know if you guys have experienced this at all, uh, but there are people who are in my family who think I'm nuts. Some people for very good reasons, but some people because of my faith. And I think all believers sometimes experience that in their life, that, that, that you just have family members who just look at you with your whole faith and your Christianity and are just like, what are you doing? Like seriously, you're singing songs to the invisible guy in the sky? Uh, they just think you're nuts. You can kind of connect with Jesus in this. Now, of course, we don't think of him as the invisible guy in the sky. We think of it very logically and say, look, the fact that a sky exists, 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 the fact that a sky exists proves to me that there's a God. The fact that anything exists proves to me that there's a God. Even science would say matter cannot be created or destroyed. Okay, then where did it come from? Because there's a creation, there must be a creator. You think I'm weird because I believe that an all-powerful God created everything out of nothing. I think you're weird because you think nothing existed, and then two things in nothing bumped into each other called quarks and began a process of evolution that led to the creation of a planet. And then little amoebas grew up in the water, crawled up on land, grew chest hair, and became us. You think I'm weird. I think you're weird. We're even, right? But at heart of the issue here is this, that his own family at this point doesn't believe in him. Now, they will. They will eventually come to that. But he's fighting battles from the outside, the Pharisees, but even inside within his own family. And we can kind of relate to that, but I love how he answers this. He looks not to his earthly family, but to his heavenly family. And he says, when my earthly family thinks I'm nuts, I look around and I see my disciples, those who do the will of my Father. And those are the ones 
who are my true family. And for us, it's the same thing. When our family rejects us, not because we are weird, but because of actual faith in Jesus Christ, because again, some of us are just weird apart from our faith, and our family might reject us for those things. But this is different, right? But when your family, your earthly family, rejects you because of the things that you believe, look around the room. You have a new family, a heavenly family, who all calls one person Father, and that is God. There's some real comfort in that. So how do we do? When you compared yourself to the Pharisees and Jesus Christ, what was revealed? What did you see in there that revealed who you were? Are you more like Jesus or like the Pharisees? Did you find any any semblance of the Pharisees in you? Then repent. Confess it. Get into God's Word, as we're doing here, and let it conform you into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for Your Word. Every time, uh, just so blessed by it, so excited to be able to be in it. So excited to see what You're going to show me and what I get to share with other people. Uh, Lord, I pray first for myself that as I preach these things, I don't just become somebody who's bringing knowledge, but I would have an understanding that would lead me to check myself. That I would recognize that there are times when I get bumped, that what comes out is bitterness and grumpiness. Lord, help me to continue to fill my cup with you, with the things of God, so that when I'm bumped, the truth comes out and compassion comes out. Lord, I pray for anybody that uh, recognized that in themselves. I pray that this would be a day where they would draw closer to you and they would ask you and your spirit to to change them. Lord, I also pray if there's anybody here who, who just hasn't believed before this, that if there was something in the word that that grabbed a hold of their spirit, that your Holy Spirit in that took the word and and allowed it to, to change their hearts, that they would come to a place of believing you, that they would be not like the Pharisees who continued in their conspiracy theories and their accusations and their hope to destroy the things of God, but instead that they would be like the people of Nineveh and that they would repent and that today would be the day that they would hand their lives over to you. Father, I thank you for these things. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.